You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, May 14th, and we are live from Nexus 2016. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, New York. And we have a special guest for this episode, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Thank you. Greetings. <laughs> Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no. It is I who must thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so the episode that we do from Nexus every year is our memorial episode for Perry DeAngelis, who is the rogue who is no longer with us. And we include now Mike Lassell and Michael Orticelli, two other you know, friends of the show, supporters of the podcast, close, close friends of ours uh, who we lost recently as well. This is you know, the episode where we like to remember, you know, especially Perry, whose spirit is still with the show. I mean, Evan was just telling me yesterday he thinks about Perry every day. I do as well. We still get emails, still get emails, people who are going back, listening to the first hundred episodes that Perry was in and sort of experiencing his what he brought to the podcast all over again, experiencing his loss all over again. It keeps it very real for us. Even now, it's been uh, nine years. Yeah, nine years, and it's still very, very, very present for us. Okay, Bob, you're going to start us off with a forgotten superhero of science. For this week's superhero, superheroes of science, I'm going to cover Cecilia Helena Payne Gaboshkin. Thank you, Danny, for telling me how to pronounce that. She's 1900 to 1979. She was an, uh, a British-American astronomer and astrophysicist uh, who was the first person to realize that stars or the sun, and then stars, and then the universe consists pr predominantly of hydrogen. Very first one. Uh, Payne spent her entire career at Harvard. Um, she initially, for a little bit, she had no official position and was making very little money. Uh, she was very dis discouraged. She almost left because of that. But eventually, the new positions came, the new titles came, and she started doing very well, and she eventually became the first woman to head a department at Harvard. Pretty impressive. But she is really most mostly well-known for, for hydrogen, her work with hydrogen. Her early work supported the, uh, the common wisdom of the time that the elements that are found in the Earth match the sun in terms of their ratios, but she found that hydrogen and helium far and, far and away were in abundance in, uh, in the sun, and no one had really noticed that beforehand. Helium was discovered in the sun, right? I mean, we didn't know of helium prior to... Well, we maybe knew it needed to exist, but the first place we saw helium, if I recall correctly, was in the sun, hence the name, right? Helios, helium. Yeah, right. but, but still, scientists at the time thought that the, the, you know, the elemental ratios were the similar were all, over the, all over the place, but she was the first to realize that there was just so, it was just primarily hydrogen. Um, so she mentioned that in her thesis, and then she was going through her dissertation, and uh, an astronomer, Henry Norris Russell, famously uh, tried to deter her uh, from presenting that, that conclusion. And he did that mainly because, like I said, it was commonly believed at the time that the ratios were, were similar, and he just didn't buy into it. 
And um, but the weird thing was that four years later, he was doing similar research using different methodologies, and he came to the same conclusion that she did. And what did he do? Well, he wrote a paper, of course. He briefly mentioned her. Uh, I don't think he really spent the time on her that, that he should have, considering she came up with this first. And then, of course, for many years or even decades, he got the lion's share of the credit for that discovery, even after her work had, had been accepted. So, bastard. How did so, she do it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry? How did she determine helium was in the sun with this spectroscope coming through the telescope lens kind of situation, looking for interference lines or some exciting thing? That's what I assumed. That, that was spectroscopy. That was like That's that. what I do, spectroscopy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm curious about the idea that like they can look at they can look at light coming from the sun and saying that's helium, right? Like it's, it's yeah, just when by you the look color at the at the bands of excitement. You it's, know this the, the quantum leap that we're all in favor of. You mean the TV show? Uh, <laughs> wow. No, it's related to the TV show, uh, but this is where the electrons fall from one energy level to another, and you look for that specific uh, pattern, and it gives you an indication of what gas you're looking at. It's very cool. Very cool. So how uh, does that relate it, to lighting your farts on fire? Of course, that's a, a, a great question, Jerry. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it really, what I like about it is that uh, we're venerating this woman who was unsung for her scientific contribution, and you come, come in with the adolescent uh, <laughs> boy thing. It's great. No, it's really important. But we were uh, just talking about this backstage. What are you doing, Bill? Not, anyway, I'm sure you were, but uh, the, uh, that is where the electrons are falling uh, from one level to another to produce blue, and the sun, it's a lot closer to what? Green or yellow. Yeah, that helium thing. So, of course, they're related. One's a chemical reaction, the other's fusion. No, wait, they're not that related. But uh, <laughs> but I just wondered how she did it in 1900-something. Yeah. Right? This would be about the t contemporary with Edwin Hubble and those big telescopes yeah, being built so. and yeah. stuff. That's pretty cool. So eventually, this would, history figures this stuff out, and... Uh, and now it's commonly accepted and known that, that she is the one that figured this out. So, so let's give her a hand. Cecilia. Nicely done. So remember Cecilia, Helena, Payne, Kaposchkin. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing beta plus decay in, of the diproton to deuterium. Yeah. <laughs> like you do. Cool. When it comes up. Yep, yep. All the time. Mm hmm all the time. We're going to do a dumbest thing of the week. We don't do these often enough, I think. Really high Prince Charles, always a good place to go to when you're looking for something dumb. <laughs> Recently said that he has a farm, apparently, a guy farms. He said that he uses homeopathy in his animals in order to cut back on his antibiotic use. Well, that will do it. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly will. Or does he do both? Yeah, well, he uses yeah, antibiotics. Right? He's not eliminating antibiotics. He's just reducing it. Mm -hmm. By watering them down. <laughs> so a good subjective outcome that you can... It's like, oh, yeah, I feel a little better. You know, it didn't cure me of anything. I'm curious of his process, though. Like, how does he determine how much less... <clears throat> excuse me, how much less antibiotics to give them? Like, okay, I'm going to give them this homeopathic bucket of water. You know, right? Okay, the medicine is in the bucket. Then he's like, all right, now I'm going to cut the dosage of the antibiotics down by what? And how is he getting to the conclusion that... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably just subjective validation. We don't know that he is actually decreasing his antibiotic use. And then even if he is, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of wiggle room judgment calls with farmers. Like, does this, you know, cow need antibiotics or not? So it's just all, you know, biased subjective validation. 
right? Probably, is there a study that shows that it's actually effective? Of course not, because homeopathy doesn't do anything. He probably gives them homeopathic whatevers until they get sick, and then he calls in his rich person vet, and then they give them real antibiotics. I think that's what probably happens. Yeah, in case you don't know, Prince Charles is, is full of woo. Yeah, he, he's, he likes homeopathy. He has his own line of snake oil, <laughs> the Prince Duchy's original snake oil or something. And he's been a strong right. advocate for alternative medicine, homeopathy, and his own products in the UK for a long time, which there is There is a royal homeopath, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Is it actually uh, called snake oil? No. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness, no. This is bold. No, no. That would be hilarious. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so like Charles's Ar- magical slurry. That's what it's called. <laughs> In Ireland, they wouldn't have snake oil. That's right. right. St. Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland. How does that, seriously, what is the other term? Does anybody know? What's another term term for snake oil? That's a good, tincture? I don't know. What would be another good? Richard Richard Wise potion. But a tincture is a real thing. Yeah. It's just an archaic term. Yeah. Bullshit? I don't know. (laughs) That's good. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But it's just charming that this very influential royal political figure is into pseudoscience. Charming, yeah. And he promotes it endlessly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he he had a hand in removing Edzard Ernst from his positions. This is an actual scientist and researcher who was actually holding alternative medicine to a standard of evidence. You know, Prince Charles didn't like that, you know, so uh, cut short his career, which is, you know, unfortunate. Okay, Jay, uh, I hear, I understand that Elon Musk wants to get his ass to Mars. He does. This is really cool. It's a great time to be alive, guys, because we're going to see, a, uh, in a positive way, an explosion of, of space exploration. And Elon Musk has, a, has huge plans. And there's a, there's a cool little wrinkle in this story about this idea of failure in the space program and whether or not failure is an option. So I'll give you a, a little background. Um, Elon Musk, using his company SpaceX, wants to send a capsule to Mars in 2018. It's an unmanned capsule. 2018, people. Yeah. That's, That's like two years. Next Around week. the corner. Yeah. You can only go every 26 months, practically, to Mars. So That's the next window? That's, window. That's the next, yeah. And I believe I'm correct in saying it's the first private company to do something like oh, this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, he's, he's had plans for Mars for a long time, I, and I, I was reading up on this. I didn't really know to what degree. He has some profound plans. So he founded the company SpaceX in 2002, and he, he wants to make humanity a multi-planet species, which I just think is so amazing in so many ways. Um, there's a reason why he wants to do this. First off and foremost, to preserve the species. And you can tell where, where he's going with this is he's actually worried about the, the longevity of our species and we need to get humans on other planets. Very awesome, very awesome idea, though it's scary as hell if you think about if we ever really needed to, needed that. He's calling it the Mars Colonial Transporter. That's the name, I think, of the mission. He wants it to happen in 10 years. By 2026 is the initial target date, which, again, you know, most of us are going to be here to see that. So we get into the idea here of the safety first thing. So going into Elon's missions, we've seen his ships explode. And if you, if you hear a quote from Elon, he says there's a, there's a silly notion that failure is not an option at NASA. And he said failure is an option here, meaning SpaceX. If things are not failing, you're not innovating enough. So this reminds me back to flight director Gene Kranz, who was the flight director of Mer- Mercury and Apollo, and he actually wrote a memoir called Failure is Not an Option. And I think we all, you know, most of us know here that 
NASA is very careful with their missions. They put an enormous amount of time, energy, and money into making sure that safety comes first. But you get into this notion of, well, first of all, there's a difference between Elon's missions and NASA's missions. Elon is not sending people into space yet. So, yeah, if, if one of his ships comes back down and it crashes when it tries to land on a waterborne landing pad, wow, that's amazing. Yep, crash, crash, crash. Now we're seeing successes. And, you know, we're, all I'm seeing is dollars fly out the window. But I'm not disagreeing with it because those crashes are hugely beneficial to the company because they, they're fixing major problems with the ship and the, 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 you know, the computers and adding fins onto it. And, and they're iterating so fast where NASA never iterated that fast. You know, if you remember the space shuttle program, we lost the space shuttle by the rocket boosters and NASA took a hi- not a hiatus, but they didn't send another mission up for a year. It was almost a decade, right? It was like was five nah, years or something. No, I thought it was like, all right, whatever. Long time, though. Elon Musk, you know, turns around in a year. He's, he's got ships in the queue ready to go. He's constantly building ships and exploding ships. But keep in mind, you guys, that uh, a couple things. When you say uh, he's doing this, he's not using his own money. These are commercial spaceflight uh, where people are paying SpaceX to put their communication satellites on board nominally and also take cargo up and now back down from the International Space Station. Well, and also NASA is one of their biggest subcontractors. I mean, NASA funds a no, lot of uh, SpaceX. they're a subcontractor of NASA. Yes, they're a subcontractor yeah, yeah. of NASA. They, right, they get a lot of their funding. And as we always say, all the money that's spent in space is spent on Earth. Yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't disappear, and uh, it's a big, it's heavy industry, you know, manufacturing rockets. But if I may just comment, this idea of colonizing Mars, everybody. Now, Elon Musk was on the board of the Planetary Society for a while, but he had to recuse himself because he was taking so much money from NASA, or he felt he had to. And uh, you guys, if you want to colonize Mars, just try colonizing Antarctica. Mm-hmm. See what you think. It's freaking cold, all right? And I'm not saying go on the ice shore where the penguins are jumping around and the orcas are snapping at them and the birds are flying. No, the krill. Go to the dry valley for a couple years and just to play fair, take enough scuba tanks for the whole trip. You're breathing air that you brought with you for the whole trip. Oh, no, we're going to make our own air out of Martian regoliths. We'll just, you know, cook it in our fusion reactor and get oxygen. Okay, maybe. It just ain't so f***ing simple, that's all, people. Premature is what you <laughs> yeah. said. Bill, you're totally right. I mean, this is, this is, it would, I was looking at it like go to the Antarctic. Don't, yeah, don't use any of the local air. Grow all your own food. And then if anything goes wrong, you cannot use the radio and call for help. Well, not for 26 months or yeah. something. <laughs> well, yeah. And so it's really, it's an extraordinary idea. And I think this idea of colonizing Mars comes from our culture here, especially in North America. Now, he, uh, Elon Musk himself is from South Africa, which is a similar idea, where you just, uh, you colonize. You leave your home country, you go out, you march across Africa, uh, which the natural resources there are amazing, beautiful place. Or you march across North America just eating everything you need all the way across. And uh, there's limitless resources. But it's not like that on Mars. It's just it's not that simple. And the, the claim that we have to be a multi-planet species, when Mars really, when the Earth rather really is going to get eaten up by the sun, is billions of years from now. It's mm-hmm. not this weekend. And so I just really caution people. With that said, I would love to go to Mars 
find evidence of life and come back. Yeah. <laughs> I want to come back. Yeah, this is key for me. Visiting Mars and colonizing Mars are two totally different things. Very sure. different ideas. And Colonization is tricky. We have, is tr- we is have very a base tricky. in Antarctica yeah. with hundreds of scientists and, yeah. and uh, maintenance workers there all the time. And we think that's a worthy investment of our intellect and treasure. And that's good. But um, it's not so uh, – you don't go there to live. So I don't, absolutely don't disagree. I mean, I, I wouldn't think 10 no. years is reasonable at all. Well, but hold it. Getting missions there in 10 years is pretty cool. Not people, though, and that's what he's saying. In 10 years, we, he wants a colony. I, I, and I, well, I think he wants to have people there. Yeah. Let's go with that. So even, you know, he wants to, he, SpaceX wants to land one of their Dragon capsules on the surface of Mars in 2018, the next orbital opportunity, and they've agreed to do the same sterilization procedures that were done on Viking and the Phoenix lander had a you know very rigorous cleaning procedures but everybody wonders is that enough will the martian ecosystem if there is one be messed up just like you can't get it clean enough however the surface of mars is about as sterilizing a place you're going to find it's crazy cold and uh and this ultraviolet light hits the thing all day and these cosmic rays so so what would we be worrying about, just bacteria at this point? Well, extremophiles. The biggest concern, I think, uh, realistic concern, is that you think you found Martian life, but you only found a version of life that you accidentally you brought with there. you. Yeah. yeah. Where the scientific conclusions are just not solid enough. But everybody, uh, the Curiosity rover has been sitting on the surface of Mars since 20, August of 2012, and, you know, that thing costs about one and a half billion dollars all in. And I just remind you, it's not locked. Anybody could just walk up to it. <laughs> no, I kid, because I love. But they believe that they'll be able, they could, if they were instructed, if somebody insisted, if I were king of the forest, for example, of the forest, we would drive this thing up close enough to one of these recurring slope linea, linea, these what seems to be flows of water, and zap it with the uh, libs, laser inter-something blasto system, where you would hit the, uh, yeah, you hit the water with a laser and you would determine, first of all, is it really water and how salty it was, and then you would draw conclusions about how likely it was there's some living thing there. But there's other people who don't want to drive the rover anywhere out of the, anywhere close to where there might be life, arguing that the rover wasn't thoroughly cleaned. But SpaceX is working with everybody. They're go, we're going to do this as a demonstration, just land a capsule on the surface of Mars. And they've talked about having a gizmo that would drill through the bottom of their own capsule to get into the Martian soil or regolith, because it's very reasonable that if there's anything alive there, it'd be under the mm-hmm. soil surface the way there's so many things living in the Earth's soil. Why wouldn't they just have a little hole that they drill down? Why would they have to? At that point, it doesn't matter. The ship is just going to be there, so just drill through the ship itself. Well, that's what I'm saying. Maybe that, that maybe there is a nice rubber gasket. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> what if a person happened to be lying in front of the hole where they wanted to drill? Well, that's they would a just, problem. They'd go yeah, right through thing. the guy. You know? And when you say a person, we assume this is a Martian yeah. person. <laughs> or, or Bigfoot, because yeah. Bigfoot's on Mars. A Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. boy. You know, the guy gets around. He colonized yeah. or they colonized. He can teleport. I mean, everybody knows that. Teleport. That's also complicated. 
But uh, <laughs> what do you think of people on Mars, though? Do, do you think we should go robotic first for quite well? We a have while? gone robotic, yeah. and by the way, uh, and I want to, you know, I love, I love this, but keep in mind that the, the the historic model has been followed here. This is to say, Columbus maps the world, Magellan maps the world, Lewis and Clark, Henry Hudson, they did the mapping, and then the commercial companies show up. Uh, so NASA, European Space Agency, Roscosmos, formerly Soviet Union Space Agency, have done a huge amount of mapping on Mars and characterizing the rocks on Mars, the regolith. So that another company can come along and use that information to land something. Eh, oh, cool, cool. But uh, they want to do it as a demonstration. And I know a pretty good friend of mine works at SpaceX, and he says that what they talk about is we're going to Mars. That's what we, yeah. Whereas... Uh, NASA has so many irons in the fire, I guess that's a pun, so many titaniums in the helium fusion that uh, they don't have that same focus. All of planetary science is one and a half, well, now $1.6 billion a year, and the NASA budget's up around $19 billion. There's The other money does other stuff, whereas SpaceX, we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars. And so they had a big meeting. I hope I have, well, I'm, it's about 2007, they had a big meeting, and they said, when, what's the problem? What do, what do you need to do if we want to go to Mars? And everybody said, the experts told SpaceX, we need to lower the cost of getting to low Earth orbit. And so that's what all that's about, and landing the first stage on a barge. It's not clear that that's going to be an economical advantage. But this, as you point out, Jay, the stuff they're learning, just trying it, yeah. it's just fantastic. We need a, we need a space elevator. Let's get back to, yeah, that'd be nice, to the failure's not an option question. Because obviously, you know, failure has happened, and it happens with NASA. And what we're really talking about is where's the sweet spot, right? You want to minimize failure, minimize waste of money in terms of blowing stuff up, but maximize the rate of innovation by trying new risky stuff. And I guess there's a sweet spot in there somewhere, and it may be more than one. safety's in the mix, though, too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's got to be. It's safety, not failing, but trying risky stuff. And, and using your money effectively. And I guess what Elon Musk is saying that we could get a little bit more, you know, courageous here and still be within that sweet spot. Yeah. But of course, it's context is everything. If you're putting up some other company's satellite, they don't want it to blow up. And if you're sending people up, you don't want to kill people. Well, it depends on the people, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, and also SpaceX, have... SpaceX is not a government agency. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that, that's a big part of this context. They can afford to, Push boundaries. They can afford to fail. They can more. afford to fail more. Yeah. Exactly. But when it moves into the, com- you know, it's commercial now. We're seeing multiple companies doing this. A few companies that are actually making some headway. I mean, that's great because their investors are trying to beat the other companies. So we have, you know, instead of just billions, we, we could be, you know, approaching tens of billions or whatever, like hundreds of billions of dollars being put into these programs. We're going to see it happen a lot faster over the next 30 years. Uh, or even less. So watch SpaceX and you guys watch Blue Origin. Have you mm-hmm. seen that video? It looks yeah. like a now what they did at they, they did a Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos, Amazon.com's company. They landed uh, from low Earth or from uh, a suborbital flight. It takes six times, uh, takes quite a bit more energy to get in orbit, and it takes quite a bit more energy to get out of orbit than just going suborbital. But nevertheless, if you watch that video, it looks like a computer animation. It's so mm-hmm. perfect. This thing comes slamming down so fast, and it slows down and lands perfectly. <laughs> it's amazing. And they're doing that to try to lower the cost of these 
of these really important low Earth orbit flights because that's where, first of all, that's where a lot of the sails are in communication satellites. Mm -hmm. And also that's going to be the stepping stone or that's where you, you pause to go on to Mars or the moon or what have you, like uh, the base camp of Mount Everest kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, oh, this is funny. My wife sent me this today. I have to show this. There's a general principle uh, we do with people. Obviously, I'm a neurologist. We deal with people who have difficulty walking all the time, and we have you know physical therapists do a home safety evaluation. And like one of the basic principles is don't have any rugs with confusing patterns on them at the bottom of the stairs or in places where people might trip and fall. Look at this thing. <laughs> For those this is designed to kill people. <laughs> this was taken at a Vertigo Wellness Center, by the way. <laughs> Really, you guys, it's a, for those of you listening to the podcast, it's a bunch of stripes that <laughs> yeah, right. just are bewilderizing. So, uh, stripey pattern stripes. on stairs. Is like, that parallel to the tread. Yeah. yeah. So you is can't that tell blood on the landing? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like when you defrag your computer. This is kind of the graphic you get <laughs> right. when, when it comes up. So imagine that. You know what's odd? There's an optical illusion here for me. Like the landing seems like it's almost closer than the stairs themselves if you kind of focus on the landing. Yeah. Oh, no, it is. It is. Oh, no, okay. Could you imagine oh, the vertigo you could get? This was designed by Escher. That's, no, that's what Actually, you actually are going This down. is so bad, it looks like a ramp. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't even look like there you are stairs. There. Where my wife works, by the way, she's pointed this out to me. She's like, see that building over there? That's the disability center. And there's this long stone stairwell going up to the only entrance. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> All right. Kara. Oh, yes. Kara. <laughs> it's what's the word time? What's the word? All right. So the word this week is is going to be a fun one. And that is, um, I really wanted to talk about some names for different aggregates of animals and where they all come from. So you guys know that a group of crows is, of course, a murder. murder. Uh, of course. That is a fun one. Yeah, it's a fun one. <laughs> a group of geese. Gaggle. Gaggle. A gaggle. gaggle. That one's pretty straightforward. Yep. But did you know that a group of kittens is a kindle? That's awesome. A kindle? Um, yeah, a kindle so of cute. kittens. And there are a few they of these that. that they make good sense. A group of rhinoceroses is a crash. I like that. Yeah. It makes mm. sense. Oh. A group of giraffes, a tower. And porcupines aggregate in a prickle. It's perfect. I like those. They work. But A prickle of porcupines. A prickle of porcupines. But there are a few here that are not quite so intuitive. Bears come in a group called a sloth, while many sloths make up a bed. So you could say a bed of bears? No, no. No, no a sloth, no, no, no. Of, sloth bears of bears and a bed of sloths. A bed of sloths. What the hell? What Whose the hell idea was this? This is a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, if you have a lot of ferrets running around, they're, they're hanging out in a business. A business, a business of, of ferrets. ferrets. That works. Business I like of that. ferrets. I like that one. Buffalo group into an obstinacy. An obstinacy <laughs> of... Buffalo? An what is, is that, of Buffalo. No kidding. And not to throw a wrench into the monkey works, but <laughs> is there a, are bison different from buffalo in this usage? Yes. North American buffalo group into herds. Of course, they're not real buffalo. They're bison. They're bison. That's why there's a distinction. So it's a herd of bison. A herd of bison. Obstinacy. Of buffalo. Of buffalo. Exactly. Pigs are in a drift, a drove, or a team, but swine are in a sounder. A sounder of swine. And you get a passel of hogs. A hassle? A passel. A passel. Oh. All of which are the same species, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Let's remember that. But, of course, if you have a group of boars, a group of boars together is called a singular. A what? A singular of boars. <laughs> what is I happening? Mean, maybe, maybe because they kind of have like ground-based flocking or something. I don't know. 
Sure. Who gets to determine? <laughs> Kara, who gets to determine these? Yes. Yeah. So first of all, I want to thank a, a good friend of mine. He's also a wildlife reporter named Jason Goldman. He did a great article that um, got a lot of these words together in one place. But then I, I wanted to know where does this stuff come from, and does it matter? Is it important? The truth is, it comes from a lot of different places. But and we could do a whole episode on the origins of every single one. But one thing seems to be clear: it's that the tradition of naming groups of animals, and even actually groups of people, groups of professions, and by the way, groups of animal poop, um, scat. There's a whole lot of names for different kinds of animal droppings. It dates back to the Middle Ages in England, and it has to do with hunting. These terms are actually called terms of venery. And they were borrowed from the French. And a handbook from the era that's just brilliant and beautiful and teaches you a lot is called The Book of St. Albans. It was published in 1498, and it has a section called The Companies of Beasties and Fowlies. Oh, awesome. Beasties. I like like that. That sounds like it's a Harry Potter book, doesn't it? (laughs) And um, it includes a list of 164 different terms of venery, and that's where a lot of these came from. So we're venerating, we're celebrating the animal. Exactly. And at the time, you know, it was important that gentlemen have, have a a large vocabulary. You wouldn't want to embarrass yourself at the dinner no, table. No, not when, when there's an obstinacy. No, of, of course, of course. <laughs> no, but you, you, you know Buffalo. that whoever, one or more people who did this naming, they had a ton of fun doing it. Of course. Because, sure. you know, you have like a pot of whales. That's adorable. It's adorable. It's true. So, but it wasn't also done to uh, be exclusive so the upper classes would not use words, uh, herds for words. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with, yeah, the gentleman's table, the gentleman's hunting table, being out in the field, being able to prove your um, intelligence, prove how well read you are. Your erudition, because you know these very important and very distinct terms. So a few of them that memorize them could be the cool guys in the room. Yeah, and the truth of the matter is, if you compare these middle age, like middle English, um, dictionaries to modern English, there were just so many more words in use back then. Yep. The vocabulary was so, so much larger, and there were a lot of regional differences, and it, it was a matter of import, which we don't have. Yeah, I was, hunt, I was hunting a, a bed of bears. Yeah. Yeah. And a sloth of bears. A sloth of bears. Sorry. See, I <laughs> say you're not, I'm not the cool guy in the room. He's, he's trying. Did yeah, you get a trying. clean shot? <laughs> Quite well, top draw. <laughs> so, uh, Kara, may I just add, because it's, I know, I believe I know this, so it's a lot of fun. What's a group of monkeys? A barrel. barrel. Yeah, a, yeah. Barrel. a barrel. A barrel of monkeys. All right, that's, that's awesome. That's More fun than. It's based on <laughs> Middle English usage. And by the way, this is where the term flight of stairs came from. A group of stairs together as a flight. A lot oh. of the words that we use now, the weird grouping wow. terms that we use, came from this book. Interesting, right? I still don't like the whole idea of a pant and pants, right? <laughs> like, so one leg is called a pant, right? What about underwear? I don't know. I just I don't like the word pants. It's stupid. It's plural. <laughs> I guess because you have two, but well, it's still one garment. No. All right. Anyway, back to the thing. I like a shiver of sharks. <laughs> a shiver of sharks is also a really That's good cool. one. Yeah. No, that it applies to people. I read somewhere that a bunch of boys is called a gang of boys, mm-hmm. which just seems so appropriate. Of course. Some of them work and some of them are ridiculous. And that's why I love it so much. It is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our live show at Nexus to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. And here's a great example of an awesome science course. It's our very own friend, physicist Sean Carroll's Mysteries of Modern Physics Time. Now, Sean is such a pro about time. You know, it's a topic of many of his talks. He's even written a brilliant book about it. And of course, now it is a great courses course. 
You can learn everything from, I don't know, how time travel is portrayed in movies and fiction, how far off most storytellers really are with the physics. And there's also a lot of insights, you know, on the connection between memory and causality and action with regards to time. With the Great Courses Plus, Steve, you can watch as many different lectures as you want to anytime. You know, you could be in the bathroom or downstairs. With the Great Courses Plus, Evan, they're offering uh, the SGU listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their great courses, including Mysteries of Modern Physics, Time. That is a $215 value, but they can get it for free if you're an SGU listener. Start watching today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Well, everyone, let's get back to our live show at Nexus. We're going to talk about climate change. The, the news item here is that um, the attorney general of this state of New York, where we currently are, a gentleman by the name of Eric Schneiderman, uh, this is now, um, I believe, a year or so ago, issued a subpoena to ExxonMobil uh, asking for their records on anything to do with their research or communication or activity dealing with communication around climate change. The idea here is that uh, ExxonMobil as a company was deliberately misleading their investors and the public about the impl- the effect of their business on the environment uh, and therefore that it constituted fraud. Uh, specifically, they included the argument that uh, by doing so, they were overvaluing their company to their investors. And that's something that specifically they have is against the law in New York, and so the AG has standing to, to do that. Actually, ExxonMobil um, has uh, complied with that subpoena and turned over 10,000 pages of documents to the New York AG. I, I have a question, seriously. Yeah. Was this from 1977? How far back did the records yeah. go, you mean? Because the, I remember, or rather I've seen the article in the New York Times uh, when it was just Exxon. It was before they merged. Like, it goes back that mm-hmm. far, some of it. Yeah. It, so, yeah, it goes back far. Yeah. yeah. But recently, sparking this news item again, the Attorney General of the Virgin Islands, who is Claude Walker, he also submitted a subpoena to ExxonMobil, again claiming that they deliberately lied about global warming, the effect of burning using their product. But he's using a different law. This because these states have different laws, right? So this is not under this is, these are not federal actions; these are state actions, uh, and they're actually using their anti-racketeering. Law, so claiming that ExxonMobil is engaged in like a criminal organization type of racketeering, ExxonMobil is fighting that subpoena, and they they absolutely requested I think thirty years or forty years of records, and Exxon is saying, and then I think that there's a little bit of overreach, and ExxonMobil has some legitimate points to make. You know, like they're saying, well, you know, we're only obligated to keep five years of records, and Whatever. There's, so there's a lot of wrangling about some of the legal details, which I don't really want to get into. What I'm interested in, though, is talking about a little bit, um, is just the, uh, the big idea here, you know, essentially legally going after corporations for lying about the, the science behind climate change. You know, obviously there's been a, a reaction among those who don't accept the reality of climate change. And of course, they're, they're claiming the predictable types of things. Like this is a, has a chilling effect on scientific inquiry and debate and discussion. And it's a suppression of free speech, et cetera. Um, which I, I think they're off base on that. I disagree with that. But 
The the argument is very interesting. I think the other, the analogy uh, that to draw here is with the tobacco industry, right? Because sure, the, the tobacco course, industry yeah. was caught red-handed. You know, we basically they found the smoking gun of them knowingly lying about the link between their product Wait, using they got their a gun product to smoke <laughs> their smoke, yeah, their their product and and cancer. And that they knew about it and that they engaged in a campaign to, to muddy the, the science and mislead the public about that connection. Mm-hmm. And they were ultimately held responsible to the tune of billions of dollars oh, yeah. for lying about the effects of their product. That seems to be a pretty coherent analogy to the current, if we can, can demonstrate that the, like Exxon Mobil, whether they were as Exxon or Mobil or whatever, that they, you know, had scientific information that they d- distorted, suppressed. We know that they had front groups that they were funding whose purpose was to, uh, argue against the science of global warming. Um, like lobbying? Yeah, like lobby groups yeah. or front groups. You know, they, they, you know, like they start what looks like a grassroots organization, but they're funding it and it has a very specific mission, which is to confuse the public about the science of global warming. Well, and it's, it's not just about having the information. There, there's also, I think, a, a general, um, concern that ExxonMobil had information and then it utilized it within their own company's long-term plans. Yeah. That there's this idea that not only do the ExxonMobil executives understand what fossil fuels are doing uh, to climate change, but they are thinking about the future of the world as a world that's dealing with the effects of climate change, and they're, they're working in strategies for mitigating that within their own company policy, which is insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. That's malfeasance. So, I think minimally. So. Well, yeah. uh, this is the question I have about all deni- I have about all deniers. <clears throat> How much do- have they fooled themselves? And I think, uh, there were, when you watch the footage of the cigarette executives from years ago, there's, to me, it looks like they really kind of didn't believe there was a connection between cancer and cigarettes at some level that they had, they've embraced the idea yeah. to the point where they could they, live they, with they the, rationalized with the, it. Uh, yeah, rationalize, live yeah. with the conflict. The interesting thing though to me though, Steve, is these are, People, this company's being sued for overvaluing itself, right? That's really, that's cool. It's interesting. It's complicated. It's smart. Because essentially yeah. part of the argument was that their value of their company was based on the notion that they could extract all of the oil and coal or whatever on their land and burn it. And they were saying, what if we decide that we can't do that, then their company isn't as valuable. Right. And they knew that that might be a problem because we can't put all of that CO2 into the atmosphere. And they knew this in 1977. They knew this decades ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was asked by uh, a, cli- a very notorious, a notorious climate denier, uh, Mark Moreno, did I think that was fair for uh, executives to be sued like this and get in this sort of hot water? And I said, it's up to the courts. I mean, if it's a reasonable argument, then the courts will decide. It's not up to me, although we all have opinions about court cases and so on. Uh, he was asked a leading question uh, from a journalistic standpoint, uh, absolutely incorrect style of question, and I did my best to deal with it. It's up to the courts, Mr. Moreno, not up to me. Well, they, it really boils down to what are the current laws? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. What are the well, laws, and how is it in New York State if you deceive your tax, your uh, stockholders? Stockholders. Yeah. It's going to be tough to have if this if this becomes a jury decision to find a jury that doesn't have an emotional. Um, right, it feeling about this, ha- yeah. doesn't have Exxon in their portfolio in uh, some way. I do have a question. I, I wonder, I mean, I know that it's important to understand just for 
because I'm interested. I'm interested how many of these executives maybe they know or have they convinced themselves that they don't know. You know, th- it does seem like there's a difference, yeah. right, between overt malfeasance and sort of buying into your own game. But at the end of the day, when a palm reader swindles somebody out of hundreds of thousands of dollars and they go to prison for it, does it matter if they believe they're doing the right thing or if they overtly no. know they're not doing no. the right thing? I, don't I think, think it, it, it has to not matter. It has to not matter. Because it, what's important is are you doing due diligence? Mm-hmm. Are you following the standard? Whether, right, so because you, to say it matters means that your beliefs are paramount. They're supreme. That if you, as long as you believe something is right, you can do it. No, you have to follow the law even if, if you don't necessarily agree with it. If 97% of scientists say you're wrong, I'm sorry, but you have to go with that. You know, and especially if you're a large corporation, you can't just decide what you want the science to be because that's a, it's even if you really believe it, right? That's like saying a pharmaceutical company says, "Well, they believe their drug works." Yeah. Who cares? But there is a they rich have to history. prove it works. I don't yeah. care what they believe; they have to prove it works to a to an accepted, transparent standard. That's what matters. And that's where where I think we start to see some. Some problems, you know, we start to see that the scientific method is less rigorous as it is applied. Not that the scientific method is less rigorous, but that our legal system is not based in science. And oftentimes we start to see a disconnect because we do have a rich history of of individuals who are, you know, finding themselves within the judicial system and intent intention has to do with their outcomes, you know. First degree murder is very different from second degree murder. It's very different from manslaughter. And we actually treat those individuals differently. And I worry that if these executives can make the case that even if there were internal mem- memos, they didn't believe them, yeah. that they will get a lighter sentence. And that, that, that concerns me. That may mitigate some of, some individual guilt. Because I mean, it is true that the legal system does take into account intention and state of mind, et cetera. It doesn't always matter in some contexts, but it mm-hmm. does in others, like you were saying. But again, that, again, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds legally because we have no lawyers up here. Truth. Uh, and I do say, I think your position, Bill, is like, well, let the legal system work it out is, is perfectly reasonable. But it is funny. I mean, I've read a lot of, of uh, the reaction to this and a, and a lot of comments, a lot of obviously focused at you because you made that one, what I thought was very innocent comment, Bill. But um, what I, I said... Uh, uh, I can understand where someone was trying to sue yeah. them. Right? And we'll see what happens. We'll see Essentially, what happens. we'll see what happens, which is like, yeah, we'll understand. see what happens. I mean, let the lawyers sort it out. Uh, but I, it is, I do like to try to understand what the other side is saying. I, when I wrote about this, I, I was left this comment. This is a comment left so on my blog. So if you're uh, listening on the podcast, he just put up a slide with a lot of words. I'm going to read it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read it. Ah, thanks, Bill. I'm going to read it. Should climate scientists who conspire to evade... Wait, Steve, set it up. I'm going to say it at the end. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Brotherly love. This is a comment on my blog. That's the setup so far. Uh, I'll let you know who said it at the end. Should climate scientists who conspire to evade FOIA requests, that's Freedom of Information Act requests, to rig peer review, to destroy data rather than share it with skeptics, and to use tricks to hide the decline, be criminally prosecuted? Should climate scientists who massage data and misrepresent the temperature record for the past 18 years in order to secure government funding for their fraudulent research be criminally prosecuted? Should scientists at NOAA be criminally prosecuted for refusing to turn over documents and data to congressional committee that has subpoenaed them? I have no objection to criminalization of the AGW debate. Much of the climate science profession, in scare quotes, belongs in prison. Wow. 
That's what the other side is saying. It's just interesting to to to, to see that. Now, this so was the. I would ask the other side. Well, what happens if they're all uh, not prosecuted because there was nothing to these emails that used verbs like uh, or nouns like trick to solve yeah. mathematical problems? Right, right. And showed that there was absolutely nothing to it. No, now yeah. What? That there's been multiple independent investigations. So I, you know, my point was, well, they were investigated. These scientists, yeah, were, they, exactly. they had the investigation and they were found that they didn't do anything wrong. And all we're saying is it's the same, it's fine now for this investigation to happen at the other end. And we're just, all we're talking about is doing the investigation. Now, the, the author of this comment was a gentleman by the name of Michael Egnor. People recognize Ooh. that name. Yeah. He's the, the neurosurgeon who blogs for the Disco Toot, Discovery Institute. Uh, he's a creationist, obviously, and an avid global warming denier. Oh, obviously. obviously yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I prank phone called him about seven years ago. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Totally, totally got it. Did we ever play that? We did. It yeah, was, was at funny. Nexus. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, okay. Early on. That was funny. So he's, he, he clearly reads my blog. He occasionally comments when I, I knew he was going to take my bait on this one. I knew he was going to comment when I was writing uh, this, because this is right in, like, he gets, this is what gets him most agitated, is any kind of notion of doing anything to silence open debate. Of course, that's what deniers always want, right? right. They want their fringe minority opinion to be treated as if it's, you know, a respect equal to the, the consensus of scientific opinion. Creationists just want open debate. They just want to talk about it. You know, part of the problem here, too, as an interesting side note, Steve and I were recently sued and um, just the request for information on this scale could cost thousands, tens of thousands of hours to yeah. collect, collate, and do everything that you need to do. I mean, I, d I had to go through years of my email to collect a, 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 you know, all the emails. That they no, I mean, it's definitely no joke. I mean, it's a big deal, yeah. but the thing is, it's frivolous, and that's why... You know, current, the, You're talking about the action against the scientists, right, was the FOIA right. request. I mean, we've, yeah. seen, we've seen... Friend scientists get crushed, but just by legal requests. Yeah, Kevin Folto is yeah. just Kevin FOIA yeah. requests. Yeah, There's right not now. even any legal proceedings. Yeah. And so they, the other side says that they feel persecuted. That yes. was one of Mark Morano's big things. Right. But huh. he said, is it appropriate for professors to lose their funding? And I said, in the case of the couple people you're talking about, yeah. Yes. You can't, if you work for a university and you're in the science department and you insist that the earth is 6,000 years old, you don't get a gig in the yeah. geology department just because you're, you know, a nice or because right. yeah. you want one. Yeah, or if you really believe it, like Steve was saying, like, it uh, doesn't matter. Uh, right. Uh, that right. matters more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that climate change is this debate shows here in 2016 shows to me that the deniers have been so successful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That they have worked so hard uh, to introduce doubt and they've, They've done it, and voters, you know, it's been below their top ten concerns. Yep. They have a narrative, and they're very successful at talking within their narrative, like this, like Egnor is doing here. I mean, in my opinion, he's a, a propaganda, you know, agent for the Discovery Institute, for the anti-global warming and, and, you know, creationism movement. And why, he's, why he's, creationism, he's got the narrative right there. You guys, you're probably experts on this. Why is creationism and climate change denial... Why are they so closely linked or tied? Oh, because God wouldn't allow nature to do this. Wouldn't allow us to kill ourselves. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. He wouldn't allow us to kill ourselves, and, and he has prescribed how the climate is changing. So this would be the fact that human beings, through decisions that they make, could be affecting change at that global level, I think is heretical. It's just, it, 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 it flies in the face of, a, of creationist dogma. 
where there's a guy looking out for you, has a plan for your for life, sure. and so on. And you can do whatever the fuck you I'm, want. Yeah, that may be part of it. Okay. I mean, it's, I think it's, I think part it's, of it's I see it a it's lot. Complicated. I see but, it a yeah. lot when when you get down to that um, core part of the argument. It's a little bit surprising, yeah, to me that the, I mean, like politically, they've they've come together on the conservative side. They they're like minded in a way, but which candidates they support. But um, denying geology just. I wouldn't have tied right away with denying climate change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But there it is somehow. <laughs> All right, Evan. Yeah. I understand that the lost Mayan city is mm-hmm. neither lost Mayan or a city. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when did the lost Mayan city get found? <laughs> Just the other day. No. Um, well, uh, you may have uh, read the headlines recently about a 15-year-old boy having discovered, as Steve said, an ancient Mayan city previously unknown and undiscovered by archaeologists. Um, the young man's name is William Gadori. He's from Quebec. He made the discovery by determining that the city was built in alignment with the stars. Not the, not the sun, but the stars at night, of course. Now, How did we al- go on? Yeah, A few years ago, he won this contest in which he presented his theory that Mayan cities were built and based on what the Mayans saw in the sky, the, 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 the constellations at night. Here's, what, here's exactly what he had to say. He said, I did not understand why the Maya built their cities away from rivers on marginal lands and in the mountains. They had to have another reason, and as they worshipped the stars, the idea came to me to verify my hypothesis. I was really surprised and excited when I realized that the most brilliant stars of the constellations matched the largest Maya cities. So what he had done is he had studied uh, uh, 22 of the Maya constellations for for many years, and he saw in what he conceived was that the stars lined up to these settlements, these cities. uh, uh, When you say Mayan constellations, the records exist. These are stone carvings or something. Well, uh, that's actually part of part of the reason why this turned out not to exactly be the way it. (laughs) It's not. He he perceived. So so he was studying the modern. Which which I will which I will get to. I will definitely definitely get to that. Is there a website of Mayan constellations? (laughs) Yeah, no. The 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 Maya constellations. uh, It there's a bit of a I guess controversy as to exactly how many there there were at. At the time, there of the, were at the time, s- at Maya, least six. Yeah, at least six. You know, Scorpio and and um, and the others. But you know, again, every civilization, you know, or culture at the time has looks up at the night sky and sees their constellations, and one culture sees these things, and one culture sees these things, and they each, you know, have their own perspective on on what these stars exactly are. Um. So so again, what the boy did is he. Uh, Correlated the stars in the sky to uh, the cities of the Mayan civilization, um, and what he did is he used uh, satellite imagery. Uh, you know, let me back up for a second. So he he had correlated twenty-two of the Maya constellations, but there was a twenty-third constellation which he perceived. And according to his sky map, there were three stars in this particular constellation. Now he was able to determine two of the triangulus cities. or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. three Dodicus. <laughs> he found two of them. He he was able to locate two of the three stars essentially referenced as cities, but he couldn't find. But you know, not the third. There was no third. So what he decided to do is access some uh, some satellite imagery, and he got some satellite imagery from the Canadian Space Agency, and they mapped onto Google Earth, superimposed to see where the images of any signs of where the third star, the missing city, might possibly be. And lo and behold, he found something. 
in the circle you. there up on the screen. He found, found that this, big red circle he on found, the map. He did. And then inside that red circle, he found this rectangular sort of pattern. And bingo, there it is. So therefore, uh, he concludes basically that this there is this correlation here. This is exactly how the Mayans did it. There's three stars. There has to be three cities. There have to be three and cities. Has to be here. And this is one of the and this is one of the three. Um, he's going to apparently uh, have his discovery published in a peer-reviewed journal and be presenting his findings at Brazil's International Science Fair in 2017. This is a this is actually an interesting story. And you know, anytime. Uh, uh, Kids get involved with science or, you know, have theories that they, you know, go ahead and investigate and do a lot of research. And we, we, that should be encouraged. It's, it's actually a very good feel good story. Um, but to, uh, borrow a famous line from, uh, the late Paul Harvey, here's the rest of the story. <laughs> the, uh, what we have here and what we're looking at is actually not a city per se or a settlement of any kind. It's just a field. Um, uh, agricultural field. Yeah. That's why it's rectangular. <laughs> That's a rectangular-ish, yep. Uh, the experts also claim that the Mayans built their cities, uh, the, the, the claim that Mayans built their cities according to the constellations is, is not correct. Um, they did have constellations, but um, as Bill, you alluded to earlier, there is no complete list that exists anywhere of exactly the, uh, what, the they Mayan constellations. They didn't put it on a website? Yeah, Mayans? you know, right, mayaconstellations.com. Yes. I think that domain was taken. Uh, at that time, so it, it, people it, were squatting, you it, know, even then. It's yeah. awfully hard to test a theory like this when you don't have a, a, a frame of reference really, really to go by. So you're kind of just, you know, pat- it's it's kind of a form of pattern recognition as as best yeah. As, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As, as I can. I mean, it's not entirely it. a, a crazy idea. It's offbeat. It's an extraordinary claim, but the notion that an ancient culture would have looked up at the sky and said that those three stars are important to us in some way. We're going to build a city to, you know, cities to m- mimic the heavens on earth. Okay. That's not totally crazy. No. I mean, but, uh, this show highlights the problem of, and you know, any archeologist will tell you that things look interesting from the sky, whether mm-hmm. it's a plane or now satellites, you need to be on the ground to see what it actually is. Cause you can't tell what stuff is from, from that high up. Kevin, what, did, do you know, did he go to, did he go there to investigate? No, he did not go himself to investigate. Um, okay. no. He's a kid. Yeah, <laughs> he is a kid. He's a child. But yeah. there, there are archaeologists who do investigate this and, and, and other areas. And they and, can and determine whether it was corn or soybeans. Uh-huh. Uh, or in this case, probably a marijuana field. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is 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 what it, it is. And now for the real story, dude. <laughs> it was discovered oh. by this dude named Spicoli. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine, like, if that's your patch? No, it all makes like, sense. Wait, and it now it's like on Google Earth, on <laughs> like, the news. Everyone's like, "Oh, oh my totally god, busted, dude!" <laughs> no, it was there was two stoners. And they were planting weed. They got high. And they're like, "Look at the stars. There's three <laughs> constellations, dude, bro." Um, the other thing about the Mayan cities, one of the archaeologists who, who, you know, was followed up with in regards to this story also said is that the Mayans, um, built a lot of their towns and, and villages and things actually quite close together. So you can look up at the sky, look at a bunch of stars, look down at, at a map and, and correlate the two and you'll see all kinds of, of, uh, alignments between stars and these cities, towns, yeah. villages or whatever because there were so many of them in a relatively small, Space. So again, with pattern recognition or what it's you like perceive, almost, right? in a, in a yeah. way, in a way, it sort of is. Also, the guy made the claim 
that they didn't build their cities near rivers. Right, right. Yeah, but which, you know, is true, um, but you didn't always have to have your cities well, or near, is it near that rivers. The rivers didn't, the rivers used to be there and they're not now. And that's the other part is that we're talking many, many hundreds of years ago. And then, of course, the geologic features do change over, yeah. over even a sh- relatively short amount of time. Uh, like, like that. Uh, the point of the, the real point of the story here is, you know, certainly not to discourage kids from having an interest in these sorts of things, because I think that part of the story is great. But when you sort of skip the peer review yeah. part of all of this, you don't go to the experts who are actually are already doing archaeological investigations in these exact areas. You, you miss out on a whole bunch of in, a whole bunch of information. How did the story become such a big story? Uh, yeah. So that's the other part is that the, there's a narrative there. That's it why. is a narrative and it's a feel good story. And a lot of news agencies and a lot of science uh, websites, you know, ran with this. Um, I'm at, shocked. At, yeah, as as is on on face value, um, but it only took about a day or two before the the experts came out and said, Gee, "Sorry, guys, you got this so one how wrong." So how did he get it publicized on Facebook or some exciting thing? Uh, yeah, it was picked up in uh, a local Quebec uh, news news report, and it sort of ran from there. Local I think, I think the real question is, which peer-reviewed journal is publishing uh, this? And yeah, no, please uh, inform us so we don't read it. Wait, it, it, it's not peer. That's the whole thing. It's it not, wasn't yeah. peer-reviewed. Right? Oh, I thought it's you the, said it was. No, it's planning. Ex- his, his discovery was at least, and it still is reported that it will be uh, appearing in a peer-reviewed journal yeah. uh, coming up. But I will we'll would see if that, guess now if that's going to be yeah. uh, changed. Yeah. gotcha. Uh, based okay. on the new evidence. Based on this podcast. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Well, everyone, we're going to take another break from our live show at Nexus to talk about our other sponsor this week, Plated.com. This is a really convenient way to solve like the whole dinner problem where you're like, come home and you know somebody didn't go to the supermarket, you don't have food, your kids are hungry, you're hungry. I know when I get home, I just want to eat dinner. But bottom line is you, have to, you either have to order or cook. And if you're going to cook, Plated lets you select delicious and innovative recipes that you get fresh food delivered to your house. They pick seasonal, local ingredients, and you pick up the box, you open it up, you follow the recipe, and you cook the food that they send you, and it's it's exactly proportioned to the meals that you selected. So there's no waste of food. It's fast. It's easy. And, it, you know, it's fun. I really I, – I did it. I really enjoyed the experience. The food was great. It was very easy. That was the whole thing about it. Just made it very convenient. Yeah, the service is pretty convenient. You pay just $12 a plate. You can skip nights, skip weeks. You don't, there's no membership. Uh, if you get more than four plates a week, the shipping is free. You just, just, you know, every week you could choose from nine different recipes. You choose what, what you want, how many plates you want, and it comes delivered to your door ready for you to cook. And you know what I like the most about it? I don't know if you guys grew up in a family like mine where it's like meatloaf on Tuesdays, stroganoff on Thursdays. It's like always the same food that we eat. This gives you the opportunity to try something you would never cook on your own. Create chef-designed dinners at home with Plated. Go to Plated.com slash skeptics now to get started with your trial and claim a free dinner for two with your first box. Yes, a free dinner for two in your first box that's pretty sweet. Just go to plated.com slash skeptics for terms and details. Well, let's get back to our show. All right, Bob, you're going to tell us why space is three-dimensional. That's, this is going to be simple. Okay, yeah, short, space. short and sweet. I've got a question even before you begin, but I'll, I'll hold it. Lead on, Bob. You sure? I'm, you yeah, I thought we had four dimensions. That was my first question. Like I'm okay. wearing a wristwatch. <laughs> it's space, space, not space-time. Space. Spatial dimensions, not 
temporal dimensions. Why is space three-dimensional? Okay. That's yes. Okay. So scientists have provo- uh, proposed a solution to uh, the question that's been contemplated ever since the ancient Greeks. And why is space three-dimensional? There's, it's four-dimensional, one dimension of space, of time, three dimensions of, of space. And, but w- so why are there three dimensions, three spatial dimensions? Why not four or five or, or two or whatever? So their, their conclusion is that the laws of ther- thermodynamics have forced the universe in some way to have the, the number of dimensions that we have. So okay, that was, then why are the laws of thermodynamics wrong? Why couldn't there be <laughs> n dimensions and the problem is what we think is a law of thermodynamics isn't really a law. It's more of a guideline. Yeah, okay. why is Christmas only happen yeah, once a Bob. year? Yeah, Bob. Yeah. Hey, Bob, how you doing down there? This guy's got I'm all the fucking answers over here. Not as good as I thought. <laughs> no, tell you what, let me, let me go a little deeper and then if you still have questions, then I'm, I'll, I'm going to get... Somebody like Brian or Leonard to uh, answer Brian them for you. <laughs> so, so it's kind of, ever try to imagine four spatial dimensions, spatial dimensions every day. It's it, but it kind of hurt, doesn't it? It's because and that's an, obviously because we we evolved in a three dimensional world. We've got three dimensional brains. Um, you could ma- mathematically manipulate three, four, ten, a hundred dimensions. That's not a problem. But four spatial dimensions, that's just, just impossible. Um, the, the best way that I've come across to, to really drive that home is if you imagine three dimensions, you got length, width, and then height. These are, the, my fingers are obviously dimensions, and they're at, each dimension is at right angles to the other two. So how would you insert a fourth finger in here that, that's at right angles to reality? It's just something that's inconceivable. <laughs> Kara, can you do that? That's pretty good, Kara. No, no that's good. Doing. It's still three dimensions. Okay. For those of you listening, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's slapping his hands. <laughs> I didn't see any four dimensions. With his though. fingers extended. But there is, there is a fourth dimension, and that's it's temporal dimension. It's not spatial, and that's time. And it's not at a right angle. It's, yeah, it's a different beast altogether, Jack. Hold it, hold it, you guys. Uh, not to bust your chops, but I think it is orthogonal Orthog- in the mathematical that's, that's, sense. Yeah. To wit, if you do a uh, scalar product and one of them zero, you get zero. And if you want to get an autopilot to land at the right place, time is orthogonal to the other three dimensions when you do cross products. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm talking fast during a podcast, but I think the term right angle you might think of as a T-square on a drawing board, right. but mathematically, there's another word that's often used, orthogonal, and it has to do with how things operate in arrays and vectors and matrices and cool stuff like that kind of stuff. Lead on, Bob, sorry. Absolutely, um, but time is still, it, it's still a distinct dimension uh, apart from it's the It's distinct, spatial. yes, absolutely. Uh, distinct, it is distinct. It, it, it's one-dimensional, it only can move from the, from the past into the future, closed time-like curves notwithstanding, of course, but uh, but also we know why we know why there's a directionality to time and that's because of entropy. Entropy is the disorder in a system. It can only it can only increase. It can never decrease in a closed system. So if time then is is related somehow to uh, thermodynamics, then perhaps the other spatial dimensions are also related in some way. And that's what these scientists are c- contending. So specifically, they said that space is three-dimensional because of a thermodynamic quantity called the Helmholtz free energy density. I don't recommend looking that up. I literally fell asleep for a half hour once I started getting into that. <laughs> but the bottom line is that you could think of it in a couple ways. Um, you could think of it as the pressure in space that's filled with radiation, or a better way is to think of it as the useful work or the free energy. That's where free energy comes from. The useful work that you can extract from a system that's held at a constant, at a constant temperature. So the key idea here then, following that, is after a fraction of a second after the Big Bang, when the free energy was at its maximum, 
As soon as it passed that point, whatever dimensions were, that were in the universe were locked in. They froze in the universe. So this, this is what these scientists are saying. Um, so after that, once you get less and less free energy, then you're not going to be able to transition to any more, any more dimensions. Uh, they make a loose analogy, the scientists, to uh, uh, phase transitions of ice, melting ice. Once you go below a temperature, the ice is not going to melt. It's just too cold. So it's uh, kind of a quick loose analogy. Yeah. So you're saying that like right after the Big Bang, d the dimensions were coming into being very quickly? Yeah, you remember. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're right, dude. I remember we were getting high in the field. No, there were no but, fields or highs. I'm sorry. Or atoms. <laughs> wow. Remember before there were atoms? So uh, it's interesting. I never heard that before. So potentially the universe could be transitioning between and adding, subtracting these dimensions before you know before the free energy uh, reaches wow, a certain level. Really so that's cool. so they, well, you know, this is still. It's a could model. we say that the the three dimensions froze into place as the universe cooled, and now it's just too cold for there to be more. Not enough energy. You you can kind of say that, but I think a more accurate way to say that is that the free energy was at, was at the the critical, and when you went below that critical amount of free energy, then that's it. It was no more dimensions. In. It was so this is in. not a quantum theory. Well, that's that's actually very interesting. And let me just throw out a quick quote um, from Julian Gonzalez Ayala. She was involved in this. She said the number three of the number three kind of uh, let me get her exact words. This is the first time that the number three of the space dimensions arises uh, as the optimization of a physical quantity. So that's a kind of important quote. So, but I noticed though, that there was a problem that they said that well, in the future we're going to refine this theory and we're going to include quantum effects like the Planck epoch. And I that was a red flag. It's like wait, you that's kind of an important thing not to have in your model, especially when you're talking about stuff like that. And the Planck epoch is, that's the period of time immediately after the Big Bang. I mean, right at when it started, from zero seconds to 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So it's a tiny, tiny sliver of time. But a lot of important shit happened in that tiny sliver of time. There's things like uh, quantum effects, um, the, uh, the quantum effects of gravity dominated. There was also uh, gravitation. They they think was as strong as the other all the other forces, which is kind of interesting, especially since all the other forces they like laugh at gravity because like, gravity is so weak, but n potentially not at that time. And also, all the forces were unified. So there's this little sliver of time at, that where a lot of interesting things were going on, and they just did not include that in their model. So, but still, even though even though there was that little caveat there for me, I still thought that this sounded reasonable and, and a little bit, not a little bit exciting. Uh, then I, I went to the technical paper and it was, wow, it was... Yeah, like unreadable. Imagine it's incredibly dead. technical. So I, re I, realized, <laughs> I realized I needed to confer with a real physicist and not just rely on me, somebody who plays a physicist on a podcast. So uh, I called uh, Stephen Hawking. No, I didn't. Yeah, he, he doesn't take my calls anymore. So I, I, I went to the next best guy, Brian Weck, talked with him. So we chatted about it, and he had some interesting things to say. Um, he said this thing doesn't, des this news item doesn't deserve the hype it seems to be getting, or even a press release. He said these uh, these equations, um, these equations in the paper, although they seemed intimidating to me, he was like undergraduate students can do this without much of a problem. In fact, he he's given his undergraduate students equations nearly identical to this. Also, the idea that the dimensions pop out 
doesn't make a lot of sense because th these are quantized dimensions. Uh, you know, they're not going to necessarily just pop out, especially when you consider they said that it's approximately three dimensions. Not three, but approximately three dimensions appearing. That's, and that's kind of like saying Jay is approximately good at doing accents. It just, just doesn't kind of make a lot of sense. <laughs> so finally... Oh, wait a second. <laughs> it's an analogy. It's an yeah, analogy. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And then <laughs> finally... Or maybe better to say like you're approximately pregnant. That... <laughs> I, no, I wanted to give Jay a dig. I wanted to give Jay a dig. I understand, so. but I like analogy. But that's a good one, too. That's oh, that was too. a dig? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then finally, Brian was saying things like, if the universe was going to decide on a period of time to settle the number of dimensions, it probably would do it during the Planck epoch and not a little bit after, which is the, the regime where, they, where they're doing yeah. their, their, yeah, yeah. their things. So, in conclusion, I'm, I'm not going to get my hopes up yet that we've discovered... Um, you know, why we're, there's three dimensions in the universe, but I think I'm going to continue to try to find that fourth dimensional finger to fit in right. three dimensions. So what? Where are you going with that? I, I still have some follow-up questions. Okay, go. <laughs> but the statement was, if I understand it, well, we know there, uh, that energy always spreads out because of entropy. But isn't entropy a description of the way time goes for us? So the, this right. question, it, to me, is related, if I understand it, they said about three dimensions? Approximately. <laughs> Not about, <laughs> approximately. So it gets into this thing, uh, is there something that keeps more than a, than a three dimensions emerging? Is there something that constrains it? And it reminds me, just this is only reminds me, everybody, it reminds me of uh, the idea of a multiverse, another universe. Well, there's no reason there couldn't be one. So perhaps, therefore, there is one. There's no reason there couldn't be a fourth dimension. Oh, wait, maybe there is a reason there isn't a fourth dimension, and that's because of entropy. Oh, wait, entropy is something we use to describe the situation where we've got three dimensions in time. Like, it's a chicken and egg. I think it's, it's a circular a, yeah. argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, circular a yeah. little bit for me, yeah, yeah. just listening and watching. But how cool is that? How yeah. cool is that that people are pondering this? Yeah, yeah that's, so that's here's the next yeah. question. My takeaway is how cool is it that people can actually think yeah, about well, this shit? Here's the next question, though. Is what would you change to get a fourth physical dimension? What, what's gonna, what would we do differently, man? <laughs> queen to Queen's level three. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Infinite number. Queen to Queen's level was, four, I think, is yeah, the way it was you handle Queen's that. level four as soon as I said it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just so, okay, I say this all the time about my knowledge of the first Star Trek series. The original, original series. series. 79 yes. episodes. <laughs> why, why is that information so carefully stored for me? Why is Deck 5 near my cabin so important after I was attacked by an Andorian? Why keep that when there's yeah. other cool stuff I could be using? I don't know, but Bill, could I make an argument that maybe you wouldn't be Bill Nye without those Star Trek memories? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, you could make that argument. Approximately. Mr. Neville. Could, you all right, Bill, I have the answer to all your questions. It's science oh. or fiction time. <laughs> science fiction time. Science or fiction. Science or fiction. Yes. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of expert skeptics and Bill Nye to tell me which one is the fake. Here they are, three news items for this week. Item number one, researchers have developed a tiny robot you can swallow as a pill. It then unfolds and can perform surgery from the inside. 
Uh, number two, scientists have discovered the first eukaryotes without any trace of mitochondrial genes. And item number three, new archaeological evidence suggests that Bronze Age ceramics were often mass-produced consistent with assembly line production. Well, this is how it's going to work. We're going to pull the evidence, the audience, very quickly first, and then we'll go down the line. We'll start with you. I don't want you to tell me if you know for an absolute fact if it's real or not. Just tell me what you think is the fake and, yeah. and why. And you could give, it, give your reasons on all three. But first, very quickly with the single audience, clap. we'll do the single clap, a la George Robb, because I think he's perfected that. If you think that the one about the tiny robot is the fiction, clap. If you think the one about the eukaryotes with no mitochondria is the fiction, clap. And if you think the one about the Bronze Age ceramics is the fiction, clap. Okay, I think two, I think two, two had the, the, the uh, edge there. But yeah. we'll see what the panel thinks. And if they influence you, Bill, tell us what you think. Uh, I think number two is the least likely to be true. The mitochondrial Because if you're a eukaryote, you're going to have uh, nuclei in your cells. And uh, they have to be powered. They need an energy source. And I think that would be mitochondria. But I, I'm not a biologist uh, full-time. If I were going to pick one of those, because of the first one, a robot you swallow, there are temperature sensors that I know cyclists swallowed while they're racing. I could imagine that thing, for example, doing something to, I'm not trying to get you troubled, but doing something to your urethra or kidney to clean it out. That mm -hmm. seems actually pretty programmable in a tiny thing. And then the third one, uh, when I look at the, uh, especially the underwater shots of all those amphora, amphorae, all the wine casks, uh, this seems like they would have to be mass produced. So that third one seems pretty reasonable to me. And I'm doing it only by process of elimination, not out of, uh, something seems patently absurd. So, so mitochondria is false. Number two is the least likely. Alrighty, Evan. Uh, okay, uh, the, you know, the one about, um, the, the pill that you swallow, as a tiny robot, that seems fine. But then performing surgery from the inside, that's fascinating. I really hope that one turns out to be the, uh, the science, because that's so cool. Uh, eukaryotes without any trace of my, mitochondrial genes? Any trace? Eh, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem right. And then the last one also, it seems really interesting, the Bronze Age, um, often mass produced consistent with assembly line productions. I imagine they found some, some, uh, tools that they couldn't either otherwise perhaps explain except in this particular context. I think uh, eukaryotes without any trace of mitochondrial genes is fiction. Jay? Okay, so uh, process of elimination. I think the uh, the one about the mass production of ceramics is science because, it, like Bill said, it just makes sense and there's no reason why they wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, going back to the first one about the swallowing the pill and it, it does surgery, I have a problem with them calling it surgery. I want to know exactly what, how we're defining that in order to say it's actually surgery, but I... I do feel like we're, we're at that point now where we could kind of pull something like, like this off. And the reason why, um, you know, I'm not too sure about this one about the, the mitochondrial genes, because everybody knows if you carry oats, you don't have any room to carry genes, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez>. God. <laughs> You're a whimsical Jay. Nice one, Jay. Such a Jay, Joe. Seriously. What do you God wear? Damn, I was so psyched about that. <laughs> what do you wear while you're carrying the oats? But up them. <laughs> Coveralls? Pants with pockets, man. <laughs> well, what if they were denim pants? Then they'd be jeans. Or jeans. Oh, Bill. Oh, my God, you're awesome. See, this is why I'm not the science guy. <laughs> uh, I wondered why that was. Lead on. Lead on. So I will, for sheer fact of respect for the man sitting two spots to my right, I will agree with Bill and say that, yes, the eukaryotes one is fiction. All righty, Kara. You heard the one about the DNA helicase, right? The DNA what? Helicase. 
If I were an enzyme, I'd be DNA helicase so I could unzip your genes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a joke. Shuxi, girl. <laughs> Has a guy actually used that line on you? Or? Yes, yes, that's actually. Uh, that, yes. Doesn't, that doesn't work, work, by the way. It doesn't work. work. No, no, shouldn't work on you. So um, researchers developing a tiny robot you can swallow as a pill. That's been done. So that part of it's not new. We know that that's science. It then unfolds. Here's another Okay. layer and then it performs surgery i think a lot of this depends on how steve defines surgery mm-hmm. i'm going to benefit of the doubt this one and say that something simple like maybe cleaning out your urethra um little scrapies that could be surgery so i'm going to say that this one is science interestingly scientists discovering the first eukaryotes without any trace of mitochondrial genes by definition a eukaryote has mitochondria it, it's nucleated sure um but this is kind of the transition from prokaryotes to eukaryotes is the idea that two prokaryotes or or what we now call a eukaryote sort of absorbed a prokaryote. Now it has two different types of genetic material. Is that endosymbiosis. endosymbiosis. That said, we see oftentimes in our evolutionary past what we call convergent evolution, where there are two structures, for example, uh-huh. a bat wing and a bird wing that evolve completely independently. Maybe it's the case that there were two different ways that eukaryotic organisms developed. I kind of like this as a science. I know I'm going against the grain, and I may be suffering for it later, but I'm going to say this is science. And I'm going to say that the archaeological evidence question is the fiction only because maybe it wasn't the Bronze Age. That's what, yeah. Maybe it was a different age. I feel like this could be a Steve trick that he has up his sleeve. So I'm going to say it wasn't the Bronze Age. (laughs) Okay, Bob. Ooh. I hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> well, here we go, Steve. Here we go. Here's where right. we lose all. Six minutes, Bob. All right, I could do it in six minutes. No, I mean, we have six, <laughs> the answer's in six minutes. No, you, you just gave me six minutes. Um, no, the, the second one, the, uh, the eukaryotes, I, I agree. Very, very good. I, I agree with that. Um, I, could, I could imagine perhaps the, the mitochondrial genes. I mean, it makes no sense. I mean, where they're getting the, their, their power from, the, the mitochondria power, the, the cell. Um, maybe there's something tricky here. I mean, eukaryotes, I think, I'm, I'm ready to be impressed by, by this finding, and I hope that Kara is right, because that would be fantastic if they have some, or, some other energy source. That would be fantastic news. Um, but I suspect it, that's the trick one, I think. The pottery one, that's, I thought that seemed very reasonable to me, but the, now I'm thinking about the Bronze Age. But I'm going <laughs> to go with, with um, the, the robot. Sure, we've got robots. Sure, we've oh. swallowed them to, and to do things. But the fact that they're unfolding, all right, that's cool. But performing surgery, I don't think so. I think we're still trying to figure out how to, that thing is going to get around. Because if you're going to do surgery, you have to go to a specific place. And I don't think we're quite ready yet to bring it to a specific place, let alone start doing surgery. Fiction. <gasps> Okay, let's see how you influence the audience. If you think that the tiny robot is the fiction, clap. All right, Bob's influence there. If you think that the no mitochondria in the eukaryote is fiction, clap. Still very popular. If you think, uh, like Kara does it, the ceramics is, the bronze age ceramics is fiction, clap. Definitely. Yeah, a little bit of influence, a little bit of influence. But they okay. all seem kind of equal to me. Now, yeah, the second, no. they, they're still holding firm on number two. All right. One was close, though. Yeah. Let's go to the first one. We'll just take these in order. Um, sure. Researchers have developed a tiny robot you can swallow as a pill. It then unfolds and can perform surgery from the inside. Bob, you think that one's fiction? That's what I said. Some of the audience think that one is fiction. And that one is science. All right. Sorry, Bob. Very cool. 
MIT University, also uh, the University of Sheffield, Tokyo Institute of Technology, is working on origami robots. Origami <laughs> robots. Of course. Why not? Love that. The, Why not? So a little, like, duck is in there, like, pecking away. <laughs> so there's <laughs> sandwiched <laughs> materials swan. that, that, swan. Swan. Yeah, that do change their configuration, their shape, with, with different temperatures. So they can have them be all compacted Seriously, up. Seriously, you read those couple. Were any Japanese? I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah, Tokyo. Tokyo yeah. Institute yeah, yeah. of Technology. So, you know, I worked on this light sail spacecraft, and there's a meeting of the solar sail people every few years, and I'm, it's very, it's fascinating how cultural it is. The one mm. built in the U.S. looks like you went to Home Depot. The ones that the Japanese engineers design really do fold up in these cool yeah. ways. It's really, it's it is cool. cool. It is cool, cool. Yeah. yeah. So the origami robots, awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, now they the study. The, the, the proof of concept they did was they did it on a simulated esophagus and stomach, so not in a, not in a person, obviously. And then uh, this addresses your concern, Bob. Um, once you swallow the, the robot and it unfolds, they actually then used external magnets to guide it to where they needed oh, it to go. Um, and wow. and it was that able was, uh, to, prescient, yeah. Bob. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't self guided. They had to use external magnets okay. to guide it. And then I it was able better. it was able to retrieve <laughs> objects, which doesn't count as surgery, but it's still well, it's sort of it's a procedure. But also repair small wounds, which is How? is surgery. Do you see it on video or anything? Yeah, like, like, like with liquid yeah, band-aid. Like, and what the did thing, they do? Uh, the thing that with kind of with the wound repairer thing. Yeah, yeah, that. Well, how do you that get could it just out? Stapling or Once something. Once it turns into a bat or whatever, how do you poop it out? I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully, Very it dissolves. <laughs> They're like, all right, all right. So you're gonna swallow this, and you it's gonna poop it out. It's gonna repair it everything that's going on in there, and then you gotta poop it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it might dissolve like modern sutures. Yeah. I don't think so, but yeah, I think you poop it out. Okay, let's go on to number two. Scientists have discovered the first eukaryotes without any trace of mitochondrial genes. That is the most popular one on the panel and in the audience. Give it to us. Make us happy. And that one is science. Science. Way to go, Kara. Awesome. Way to go. Nice. Good job, Kara. Yeah, good job. So, uh, I would have gotten it wrong anyway. I would have gone with the number. The researcher was Anna Karkowska, and the organism is Monocircomonoides, which is a flagellated protozoa that lives in the gut of chinchilla. Wow. Somebody completely just made that up. Yeah. And... You know, they did a full, gen, you know, analysis of the genes in the, in this, this pro, protozoa and no mitochondrial. Unbelievable. No mitochondrial genes. Now, oh, what powers that it? doesn't mean there's no mitochondria. Mm-hmm. It means they found no mitochondrial genes. They give it a 90% probability that it doesn't have mitochondria, but they have to follow up with some microscopic wow. examination to see if they could find. Okay. Now, there are related organisms, organisms in the same order that they thought didn't have mitochondria, but then they found that they have tiny mitochondria. Okay. Interesting. So either the mitochondria were able to get so tiny that they weren't able to find the genes, I guess that maybe that, that, so that may be an error, or it just doesn't have mitochondria at all. Now keep in mind, mitochondria make energy from oxygen, but you can get energy without oxygen too. There are other pathways to get energy. The question is, are there just tiny mitochondria in this organism that are missed that we haven't that were missed in this assessment? Look, this looking for their genes, or are they just getting their energy from other pathways and they just evolved out beyond the need for mitochondria? We don't know. 
But this is the first time that we have been unable to find mitochondrial genes in a eukaryote. That's okay. Awesome. That's so awesome. one of the, you know, changing the subject, of finally, back to me. <laughs> one of the things that really influenced me with respect to my change in the stance on genetically modified organisms was the discovery that genes go between species oh, yeah. and nature. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that really... That had an effect on me. Sweet potatoes have bacterial genes in them that they just got naturally. So anyway, that's fascinating. And so Kara, way to go. The question is, will they still call it a eukaryote? Or is it going to be a new eukaryote? Is is a platypus a mammal? (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. A new eukaryote. A new eukaryote, yeah. All right, (laughs) last one. New archaeological evidence suggests that Bronze Age ceramics were often mass-produced Consistent with assembly line production, that is fiction. The truth is that ceramics were actually a very elaborate, skilled art form that required a long time to produce and a long time to develop the skills. Okay, so, Steve, was the trick in this question <laughs> the word ceramic? No, it's just As wrong. As opposed to pottery. No, no, it's just hey, wrong. Did you make it up? Assembly no, no, the, the real line. news item, the real news item is that uh, the uh, evaluation of Bronze Age ceramics uh, found, this is Katarina Botwid from Lund University did this research. She um, thinks that the, the, the ceramics that she was investigating were actually produced by a child, a, a nine-year-old, estimated by the fingerprints left behind on the ceramics oh, cool. in its production. And, but the quality of the ceramics were such that she said this required about three years to develop the skill to be able to produce ceramics of this quality. Wow, so the kid started to go to work at six you, years yeah, old. Yeah, which means you have a six-year-old child beginning, you know, yeah, they, they learned the, the trade, the skill of, of making, you know, high-quality ceramics. But you lived uh, till you were like 15, so it's like a big chunk of your life, right? <laughs> right. Well, that was pretty harsh. No, there. in the Bronze Age? How long did people live? More than 50, 40. Why do you hate the Bronze Age? 40 is old, 40s, right? 40s. 40 was, would be old. I mean, it's, a, it's a complicated yeah. that's question. Not well, you know, the people who play the piano learn when they were six. Yeah. yeah. It's not, I mean. No, it's not. It's I mean, it, 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 I think it reflects the fact that kids are being put to work, yeah. you know, yeah. It was a back different then. time. But yeah. yeah. And if, you know, if you're going to put a kid to work, you know, sitting and making pottery, ceramics. I guess it's not that It's not bad. that. It's not they're out in a coal well, mine, yeah. Well, yeah. And maybe they did it. Everybody did it for fun. And there was a competition like uh, yeah. kindergarten. People let's, do it know, for fun not, now. Not everybody's mean and evil. Not yeah. everybody. <laughs> so that's cool. That was really nice, Steve. All right. Well, thanks for playing with us. Cool. And Kara, congratulations. Thank Good you. job. Good job. <laughs> Evan, bring us home with a quote. Ignorance more frequently begets competence than does knowledge. It is those who it is those who know little, and not those who know much, who so positively assert that this or that problem will never be solved by science. Written by Charles Darwin. Very cool. Woo! Very true. Thank you, Evan. Bill, thanks again for joining us. We have great pleasure having you. you. Thank you, guys. It's so much fun. I love you guys. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, too. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.